Well, good morning. I want to take you back, many of you back to your childhood. You recognize what this is? Lincoln Log. Lincoln Log. If, if you didn't grow up with Lincoln Logs, then you missed the national toy. Designed um, a series of logs. This, this actually, I found this online. This, is, this, I think, is the exact set that my older brother had that was left over for me. Um, when I was growing up. Lincoln Logs uh, were designed by architect Frank Lloyd Wright and marketed as the national toy uh, throughout ages. And uh, they're still around today as evidenced by one of my kids, Lincoln Logs, that are here this morning. Usually Lincoln Logs are used to build um, little buildings, little houses, cabins. If you're good, you might uh, branch out, build a fort. Um, more creative types have done necklaces with Abe's face carved into them. Um, if you want a little more exotic necklace, you can have this beautiful piece of jewelry for about 150 bucks. So, um, ladies, wouldn't you love to have that hanging around your neck? Um, artists, of course, are always thinking of things to do with uh, Lincoln Logs. Um, but what I, what I want to use them for this morning is to think... What would God build? Given this to God, what would God, what would God build? And this is a bit of what Ed Martin explored with us last week. Ed went all high-tech on us last week, and basically he said, God wouldn't build a building. He's not going to build a steeple. God is going to build people. Um, Ed got that, I think, from this. Um, show it to you here. This is a sand sculptor of the little illustration that I just gave to you. Isn't that amazing? Um, so God's not building a building. He's not building a steeple. He is building a people. And so we can rephrase our question and ask it this way. What kind of people is God building? What kind of people are we to be? And the laws, the kind of odd-shaped laws in the book of Deuteronomy, this is one of the things that they show us. They show us the kind of people that God wants us to be. And so if you would like to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 15, we're continuing to walk chapter by chapter through the book of Deuteronomy. We'll look at the lion's share of chapter 15 this morning, and I'd like to pray for us as we do. Lord, give us, give us ears to hear your word. Give us a willingness to be careful to obey it. And as we bow before you now, may it be a sign of our submission to your word that we will do whatever you ask of us. We will be whatever you ask of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. At the end of every seven years, Moses says, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever is yours is with your brother, your hand shall release but there will be no poor among you, 
For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. So the main idea about what kind of people God is building that comes to us from chapter 15 is that God is building a people who will care for the poor above their own financial prosperity. God is building a people who will care for the poor above their own financial prosperity. And in Deuteronomy 15, God is laying down a calendar to build this into their lives. Every seventh year, there is to be a release from debt. Now, some scholars think that means that the entire remaining debt was canceled. Others think that merely you're given a year respite and the seventh year no payments are required. But regardless, a significant grace was given to the borrower every seventh year. If you are, if you are a borrower, if you have a 30-year mortgage, this is wonderful. Okay? You love this. Okay? Seven years and we're clean. Okay? This is good news to the borrower. And this entire chapter is about how the haves essentially care for the have-nots. God is at this point, building it into their calendar, a rhythm so that this will be inescapable to them. You remember two weeks ago we looked at chapter 14, and they talked about the tithe in chapter 14. Every third year there was a special tithe, and that tithe was to be given to the poor and the needy. So this is how it's taking shape, this calendar. Year three, you give a tithe, 10%, to care for the needy. Year six, it rolls around again. You give a tithe to care for the needy. And the seventh year, you cancel their debts. See? God is building for himself a people who will care for the poor. See, when, when you follow a calendar like this, that's marked by significant regular giving to the poor and then the forgiveness of their debts, clearly something matters more here than simply the pursuit of more. God is building people to care for the poor. And this is rooted in God's own concern for those in need. And you pick this up in the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Now, you remember we've said that this big, long legal section in the middle of the book of Deuteronomy kind of roughly follows the Ten Commandments. Chapter 15, or chapter 15 we're looking at spins out of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. Back in Deuteronomy 5, it goes like this. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is with you within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, it's a command for sure, um, but it is also a gift. It is a gift from God of rest to a weary people. 
Jesus himself would say, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath is a gift of rest to God's weary people, and it is received by trust in God. If you don't trust God, you won't do Sabbath well. Matter of fact, from the very first time Sabbath is mentioned in the Bible formally, it's in Exodus 16. It's an exercise of trust. It's a fascinating account. Some of you will recognize it. On the sixth day of the week, people are in the wilderness, and they are eating this manna from heaven, right? Came miraculous bread stuff came out of heaven. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much of that bread two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, that's what Moses said to them. This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there are no worms in it because that's what happened on the other six days of the week when they tried to hoard stuff. It went bad on them, but not this day. Moses says, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Now, of course, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather anyway. But they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, to take Sabbath, a day of rest, they had to trust that God's provision would be enough. Okay. Are you refusing God's gift of rest. Are you trusting in his provision for you such that you are free to rest? Lay aside the complicated discussions all around Sabbath. Which day is the Sabbath? What's really work on the Sabbath? Okay. A lot of complicated issues. Let's just lay all those aside and say, are you trusting God in such a way that you receive this gift of weekly rest from Him? Verse 14 of that fifth chapter brings us back on the point that I'm trying to make. Um, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. See, God's concern there, stated big and bold and repeatedly, is not just for them, but it is for their slaves, their male and female servants that they would have rest. God truly cares for the poor and the needy. The Old Testament is awash with this teaching. Look at uh, from the Psalms, Psalm 82. God says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. 
Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Book of Proverbs, chapter 14. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Isaiah, talking about a fast that honors the Lord. He says, is not this the fast I choose, God says? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? God cares deeply for the poor and the needy. That's coming at us throughout chapter 15. But if you read chapter 15 carefully, there's a bump in that. About the third verse, there's kind of a perplexing statement. Saying on the seventh year, right, let all those debts go. But of a foreigner, you may exact it. Whatever is yours with your brother, your hand shall release. So does God not love foreigners? Is he... Is God being racist here? What's God got against foreigners? Um, It's helpful to, to recognize a couple of things. One, this is a covenant blessing, right? It's for God's covenant people. It's not universally applied to all people in the same way. And one of the reasons of of that is that not all people are under Moses' law he's giving them and are needful of that seventh year of forgiveness. Peter Craigie, in his commentary, says that in the seventh year, according to Exodus, the land was supposed to be laid fallow. They didn't sow. They didn't harvest. So in an agrarian economy in the seventh year, you had no income that year. He says, many people would not have been in a position to repay a debt because of the temporary interruption of their normal source of income, their crops. A debt could still be extracted from a foreigner because he would not be subject to the provisions of the year of release and would therefore be in a position to repay the debt if it were demanded of him. So it's not that God doesn't love foreigners. These laws just don't have the same application to them. Verse 4, phenomenal statement in verse 4 of our passage. There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. No poor, none at all. This is a stunning declaration from God. And it's because of the sufficiency of God's blessing for his people. That's why there won't be any poor, for the Lord will bless you in the land. Okay. Um, the reason there are no poor is because God has so lavishly provided them. Now, if you read the passage before you came, which is highly recommended, okay, a radical proposal, read the passage we're studying before you come to church. You'd be amazed at how much more sensible I am when you've read the passage before you come, okay? Honestly, you'll make me a better pastor if you'll read the passage before you come. So if you read it today, which is highly recommended, you recognize there's a little bump, another, it's a pretty big bump. 
Because uh, verse 4 says, there's going to be no poor in the land. You read down just a couple verses. Verse 7, if among you one of your brothers should become poor, well, now we've got, there might be some poor. You drop down to verse 11, there will never cease to be poor in the land. What's up with this? We have digressed from there's no poor in the land to, well, there might be some poor in the land. Well, okay, so there's always going to be poor people in the land. What the heck? There's, uh, there's one little word in, in one verse that we've lightly passed over. Uh, look at verse 5. If. There'll be no poor in the land if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. This promise of there being no poor in the land is conditions on the people's willingness to trust God and give to the poor this release. Um, This is the great threat to their obedience. There's one great threat that Moses is concerned about, and he picks it up in verse 7. He says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, oh, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely. And your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. See, the great threat to God's promise of no poor in the land is the hard hearts of his people. That would be our hard hearts. This promise of no poor is rooted in love. Love A loving obedience to a loving God, first of all, who commands that we share His concern for the poor. And secondly, a genuine love for our neighbor, perhaps especially a love for those who are poor and in need. Moses is anticipating some pushback to this seventh year. Somebody's doing a business deal about year six, and they're thinking, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not loaning this guy any money. I'm only getting one year back on it, and then it's canceled. I'm not doing that. He knows that they'll be tempted to harden their hearts to their brothers and sisters. That is, they will be tempted not to care because they care about something else more. That's what it means to be hard-hearted, not to care. Moses knows that when our hearts become hard, we will shut our hands to those in need and refuse to share what we have with them in their time of need. Moses knows 
that there will always be poor in the land because we love ourselves and we love our money more than we love our neighbor. And, and because we don't really trust that God will provide for us if we give away that which we might need. Now, verse 10, it's interesting. It says, you shall give to him freely, right? And your heart shall not be grudging when you give him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. So we are enabled to give happily because we trust in God's provision. Do you trust that God is going to provide for you? To provide for your needs if you are generous to others and give away what you may very well need for yourself one day. And see, for a lot of us, that's the catch. If we give it away, then we won't have it if we should need it, right? Um, most of you know that I am a recovering cheapskate, okay? I am learning to be generous. And uh, about, about two years ago, uh, this deck renovation project started behind my house. And the first thing they did was tear off all the old planking uh, from my deck okay? and replaced it with new. We expanded it and on and on and on. Um, so we have all this, they took off all this old decking, old railing, old steps, old uh, planking on it, and they piled it in my backyard. Old decking, painted green. Okay? And I thought, I might use that someday. That's, that's some good treated lumber. I, I could build some decks, uh, not decks, I, maybe I'll, I'll build uh, some benches around my yard. Now, I never build anything, okay? But I might. I might someday build something, and if I should build something someday, that wood could come in handy. So it's two years later. I have a pile of old decking underneath my new deck, unused and ungiven to anybody that might could use it because I, I might use it one day. I mean, you never know. There's a movie uh, that illumines what's going on in our hearts about this in a remarkable way. Um, it's called Over the Hedge, and uh, it's an animated film about a story, a street-smart raccoon named RJ who gets into a heap of trouble after attempting to steal a bear's cache of food. Okay? The bear gives RJ one week to return all of his food or else RJ himself will become a snack for the bear. So as RJ begins his desperate quest, he stumbles upon a close-knit but naive group of animals who are just beginning to forage for their own food. And in this scene, RJ attempts to persuade his new acquaintances that suburb-dwelling humans are the key to gathering all the food they could ever need. And they pass through the hedge, and he starts to show them how humans think about food. Watch this. Could we just get the food and go, really? Do they have it or not? Didn't you see it? It was in the box. They've always got food with them. We eat to live. These guys live to eat. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The human mouth is called a pie hole. The human being is called a couch potato. That is a device to summon food. That is one of the many voices of food. That is the portal for the passing of the food. 
that is one of the many food transportation vehicles. Humans bring the food, take the food, ship the food, they drive the food, they wear the food. That gets the food hot. That keeps the food cold. That, I'm not sure what that is. Ah! What do you know? Food! That is the altar where they worship. Food. That's what they eat when they've eaten too much food. That gets rid of the guilt so they can eat more food. Food! 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 So, you think they have enough? Well, they don't. For humans, enough is never enough. And what do they... Enough is never enough if you're afraid that you might need it someday. When we don't trust God, we become hoarders out of fear. Now maybe, maybe you don't hoard old deck boards. Maybe you're not that far gone. Okay? Maybe you hoard something else. Maybe it's a car you don't drive or clothes you can't wear, or toys you don't play with anymore. Maybe you hoard money. You just can't bring yourself to give it away because you might need it someday, and if you give it away, then you don't have it anymore. You might need it someday. What that really means is you trust in it, not in God. Will you trust God's blessing and be generous, especially to those who are in need? This is the kind of people that God is longing to build. Not just long ago in Deuteronomy 15, but in our day. The New Testament is full of this as well. Um, James chapter 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What kind of works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 1 John 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What would that look like? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. As a starting point, can we agree together that as God's people at Northway, there ought be no poor among us? That if there's someone in this family who is in need and we have the world's goods, we will share it with them. Can we make that commitment? Can we be that people? I mean, just as a starting point to the people that are in this room. You know, this, it's a lot bigger than just us, of course. It tugs at us to care for those refugees who just landed in our country and ended up in North Raleigh. Um, it tugs at us when we hear about our brothers and sisters in Christ and their children in the Horn of Africa who are starving. Um, 
but surely as a starting place. It means that at North Wake, there ought to be no one poor. That we should share with one another that which God has given to us. When more than half of the world lives on less than $2 a day and the average American teenager spends nearly $150 a week, when Americans spend annually on trash bags more than nearly half of what the world does on all goods, will we trust God that we will have enough if we share with those in need? Just starting with the needs of the people in this room, that there will be no poor among us. Is your heart tender to the needs of those here? Where do the poor fit into your budget priorities? Does your storage shed or your attic or your pantry or your closets or even your bank account testify to a trust-fueled generosity towards those who are in need? God is building a people who will care for those who are in need. Moses is not only shaping their hearts to reflect God's heart for the poor by their calendar and by their lending practices, but also by their employment practices. Look at the next few verses in our passage. In verse 12, he says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your flesh threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. And down in verse 18, it shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at half the cost of a hired servant, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Here there is a limit being placed on what we might call indentured servanthood. Okay. And that's where um, somebody couldn't pay off a debt they owed, and the only option they had was to basically sell themselves as workers, as slaves, so they could work off their debt. Okay? And on the seventh year of their service, they were to be set free. They could only do this for six years. It was a limit to protect the needy. Okay? And the masters of those slaves are not to begrudge that seventh year. They are to be enthusiastically and glad about it. They are to rejoice in the freedom of their slaves and lavishly outfit them. Uh, verse 14 says something like, you shall liberally supply him. The idea literally there is you shall garland him. It's like you put a, a, a fancy necklace around him and you give him meat and bread, and wine, and you party and celebrate in his honor that he is now free. Um, this he shall do out of love for his brother and thankfulness for his service. That 18th verse there indicates 
that you should not begrudge your loss, but be thankful for what you gained. That you had six years of a great deal and not try to press it for more. You know, that is a temptation for us today to try to take advantage of a distressed seller. You know somebody has to sell, so you are going to bargain them down way lower than what's a fair deal. That's just not who we are. That's not what we worship, economic gain at someone else's expense. Quite the contrary here, Moses says that we party with the freed slaves, even though it may be at our loss. There's a couple of verses I skipped in the middle of that, verse 16 and 17. So that slave who's freed, he has the, an option. If he says to you, Moses says, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he's well off with you, then you shall take an all and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. So the slavery here, again, is more of an indentured servitude than an invo the involuntary, kind of heinous slavery of our day. You know, the servant makes the call as to whether he stays or not, not the master. The servant is deciding. And what kind of master must this be if a slave decides that he loves him so much and his family so much that he will stay with him rather than be free? What would happen with that kind of master when that slave says that? He would take him, he would take him over to the doorpost and he would put his ear up against it and he would drive an awl through it that would mark his ear as being property of that person's slave for all of his life. What is really interesting is you might remember something else that's gone on in the doorpost in the book of Deuteronomy. They put a little thing there called a mezuzah that contains scriptures. And so when that slave is taken over and pressed up against that door, this is what he sees. He sees the mezuzah that contains these verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. See, we don't do, he doesn't do then his services just as unto this master. He does it as unto the Lord as working for the Lord. This is how he has chosen to love the Lord his God all of his days is in service to this master. His ultimate allegiance is not to this master, but to his God. And it is a voluntary, even glad enslavement. And this <clears throat> should sound familiar to us. It's just like us. It's just like us. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2. You are not slaves. You're free. But your freedom is not an excuse to do evil. You are free to live as God's slaves. We are free to live as God's slaves. And this we do. See, when we choose Christ, we lean our ear up to that door and we choose to become his slave forever and ever. There's an, there's an old chorus written to a, a praise song from a couple of decades ago. It goes like this. Pierce my ear, O Lord my God. 
take me to your door this day, for I will serve no other God. Lord, I am here to stay. For you have paid the price for me. With your blood, you ransomed me. Now I will serve you eternally. Lord, I'm here to stay. So pierce my ear, O Lord my God. Take me to your door this day, for I will serve no other God. O Lord, I am here to stay. So, what will God build? What will God build? He's not building a building or a steeple. He is building a people. A people who care for the poor and the needy, even if it means financial loss, if it means forgiving a debt or canceling a contract. A people whose heart is tender towards their brothers and sisters in need and who open their hand to them even though it will surely cost them, even if it means giving away what they might someday need. God is building a people who care about the poor, a people who remember their own rescue from slavery, and so they are glad to set another slave free. Verse 15 of our passage says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. The book of Titus in the New Testament says, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Let's bow in prayer together. Lord, now it's time for us to remember, to remember well that we too have been redeemed, that we have been purchased at the greatest of costs, the blood of your son, his life's blood poured out for us, his body broken on that cross. And so we remember we covenant to be a people who are generous in response. We are eager to see slaves set free like us. And out of your bounty that you have lavished on us, we will bless others too. Those in need, those who are poor and suffering. Lord, we will trust you and we will be the people you are trying to build. We make these commitments in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.